Well, as you find your way back, I would love to have you take the sermon notes that are in your bulletin and your Bible, if you have one handy, and we are going to find our way to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. As you know, we're kind of working our way through this part of the Bible, looking at it section by section and talking about it together, and it's, it's what we do. So Matthew 19, verses 30, or 13 to 30, uh, as we head toward that part of the Bible today, I want to say a word of thanks to all of you who were here with us yesterday as we honored uh, the life of Burton Apollo. Burton and Ginger, part of our church family for quite a while, older couple. And um, you know when you're almost 92, you, you run the risk of outliving most of your friends. That was clearly not the case with Burton. Uh, he and Ginger made so many friends throughout their very colorful life, and this place had about 200 people in it. A uh, number of you were here. It was just a really good and encouraging and if I may say for memorial service, a fun time. You know what I mean by that. But for Kathy and for me, that was our third memorial event this month, just the way our lives work. And one of the things that I really enjoy, if I could put it that way, about memorial events and finding myself in other settings is as I really love to interact with people. I really do. I mean, I'd like to be in, in this kind of setting with you all. I like you guys. And I also like to be in other settings where there are other people. And I learn and I like to dialogue with people about where they're coming from and what they think and what they believe. I'm so fascinated about how people get where they're at. And I I find this, whether people think of themselves as religiously oriented or less so, all of us really are armchair theologians. I mean, everybody, everybody. We've built our lives on certain things that we hold to be true. Sometimes we have reasons for them that we could explain, and sometimes we don't. We just kind of grab something and say, well, that makes sense to me. So it's, it's just kind of different that way. But about a month ago, we had a, a biblical counseling seminar, and I, I, a whole bunch of you read this book. Remember me holding this up for weeks ad nauseum, saying you should read this book. No, it's true. How People Change. It talks about... How people really change on the, not just behavior-wise, but how we change on the, on the inside. How do our hearts change? What's that look like? How does it work? And this book talks about that. And one little section, as I mulled over the story in the Bible that we're going to talk about today, my mind went, went here. Call me crazy, but I've spent a bit of time in this book over the past number of months. There's a section here about how... How what happens to us in life kind of squeezes out of us what we really believe. All right? It's in a section called thorns because it's talking about, well, things that hurt us, things that poke us. And how, it, how those things sometimes surface, maybe to our complete surprise, what we really believe. Sometimes we say we believe this, but in the push of life, it sure looks like we believe that. So the little quote that I, that I thought of, it says this. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase this to, to, to fit the setting. It's on page 126 if you have the book somewhere at your house. It says, every, every negative reaction to life flows out of our hearts. So all this stuff, whether it's anger, or frustration, it flows out of our hearts. And those reactions reveal what our hearts really think 
what we really trust and love, where we've placed our hope. So those things, they, it's like they squeeze out of us. It says these reactions help us to locate our particular God replacements, things we trust instead of God. Or as I've read in other settings, what is a functional God to you? Everybody has one. A functional God. That is, it's the thing that gives you hope or security or rest in your life. Everybody, everybody, everybody has a functional God, an ordering system to their life. It might be a being outside of themselves. It might be them, themselves. But everybody has this. Now, in our text today, we're going to find a young guy. Uh, he's called Rich and Young. Have a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus helps him to think about his functional God and kind of sort it through a little bit. You should pay attention to this. You should, because it's a part of the Bible that surfaces. It helps us to think about uh, what's our functional God and what does Jesus say about that? So interesting part of the Bible. I love this story. I love the stories in the Bible. I love this one in particular. I think it's kind of fun. It shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think sometimes repetition is there so that, for goodness sakes, you'll get it at least once when the Bible tells the story three times. Well, I want to pray for us that God will help us. And then we'll take a look at this together. Father, we we open the Bible uh, coming to a, a book that's not like any other. It defines itself as the word of a living God. And so we, we pause in a moment of, of honor and re- respect and reverence to say, God, would you help us? Help us to understand this part of it and help us to sort it through our own lives. All of us come to, to today and to this part of the Bible from a context of, of life and history and hurt and things we trust. And so, Father, would you just help us here today to, to think about the words of Jesus and how they affect us. So we, we, we ask you now for your presence among us in that special way. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Study sheet in your bulletin, of course, always has a few words of review to help you think about where we've been and um, maybe what we talked about last week. And then the little section called today's text is a little paragraph about, well, what we're going to talk about today. These these verses, 13 to, to verse 30. And it's just to talk about the text, if you have a Bible open in front of you, you kind of look at the way it's laid out. There's a little story about people bringing kids to Jesus that sometimes we read as a standalone part. And I think as much as that's good, it's part of the bigger story. I think Matthew lays this out with a reason, with a reason behind it. So there's three verses there about kids, but kids totally dependent on others. And then the contrast between this other guy who's totally dependent also, but not on other people. He's totally dependent on his stuff and his moral performance as he understands it to be right with God. So total dependence contrasted with total dependence. And then a paragraph where Jesus and his followers kind of talk about it. They debrief the conversation a bit. Very, very interesting, I think. So I want to read the text and then we'll we'll work through it in those under those three headings. So look together with me then at the word of God and and we'll read this this part of the story. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray 
the disciples, Jesus' followers, that is, rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? It's a great question, by the way. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What, what do I still lack? Jesus said, if, said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. and You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at at them and said with man this is impossible but with God all things are possible and Peter said in reply see we've, we've left everything and followed you what then will we have Jesus said to them truly I say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And many, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, just a preemptive strike here. As we come to this text, this is, this is one of the parts of the Bible that some people have taken and misread to say, wow, God is really down on money and possessions, isn't he? He's kind of mad at people who have stuff. And if I have stuff, he's probably mad at me. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text isn't, well, get rid of all your stuff, give, give more money, and then God will like you. That misses the point entirely. Okay? So, as you sigh, uh, breathe a sigh of relief before you go out to your Maserati in the parking lot, just so you know, that's, that's not it. It's missing the text. In fact, it's the opposite of what the text is all about. It's not about getting money, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Well, the first three verses, of course, 13, 14, 15, everybody loves this. It's a fun little section. Uh, Jesus is, is there, and they're bring, people are bringing their kids. This was a normal thing, by the way, for a traveling rabbi. People brought their kids, and they, you know, we were hoping this is a good traveling rabbi. And you're hoping he'll bless your kids. So this isn't like some unusual thing. They're bringing their kids. Luke's gospel says even infants. So little ones are coming to Jesus. And they want him to lay his hands on them and, and bless them. Pray for him. Bless them. That's what they're after. Now, here is in other places, Jesus' disciples. I don't know if it's because they think they're really important, but... They're kind of acting like little bodyguards. No, I'm sorry. The master's busy. Step aside. Step aside. I don't know what they're saying. Uh, But I perceive it to be something like that. Um, They rebuke the people. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Bring me the children. Let the little children come to me. We love this story. I love this story. Uh, it, it fits my heart as well. Um, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't stand in their way. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. But now, I don't believe that these three verses are here just to tell us that Jesus loved kids. I think it's like, if you study literature, this is a foil, okay, to what follows. It sets up a contrast between the total dependence of kids and this other guy's total dependence that's now going to follow. I think it sets up a, a literary contrast that I find very, very fascinating. Now, if you look at your study sheet, just to, some of you do the little fill-ins, some of you hate those, no problem, ignore it completely. Um, but if you do, I'm saying this, Jesus loved vivid illustrations. People love to listen to Jesus. If you read the gospels, you find it says normal people love following him around and hearing him talk because he was colorful. He told great stories and it was clear that he was a kind person and loved people. So people says the common people heard him gladly, but he used wonderful illustrations, flowers, birds, and of course here children. Now we mentioned before, because this isn't the first time Jesus uses kids. He's not referring here to what we often call the innocence of children. Um, shows up with kids again back in chapter 18. It wasn't that long ago. Innocence of children. Uh, all of us who are parents, when we talk about or hear somebody talk about the innocence of children, we kind of raise our eyebrows a little bit. <laughs> because, uh, well, you know, if you've raised kids or hung out with kids, you know, I mean, seriously, um, they're not all that little innocent little darlings. I mean, come on. I mean, they're two, and they're already plotting how to take over the, the daycare. They just do that. Um, and I, I know. You, you know it's true. Uh, our kids are little sinners, I have on the study sheet here. They'll only get better at it as they get older and watch us. There is some truth to that. Now, uh, a bit of an aside, but nonetheless, thinking about children. Children are little theologians, too. Did you know that? From the time they're young, they're figuring out life. They're developing their understanding of God and the way the world works. It's theology. Okay? Again, I say to you, maybe you don't think about yourself as a theologian, but you are. You've got a working understanding of how the world works. Maybe you made it up yourself, but you have one. So I was, I was in a conversation the other day with unnamed children, uh, unnamed child, one of yours, but I won't. I won't explain. Well, you'll get it. And we were discussing theology, theology of life, like this. Said child said to me, um, I'm working really hard to behave today. I said, wow, that's, that's important, impressive. What, what, what are you working on? She began to list a number of things she's working on. Oh, not, not hitting and not pushing and, you know, it's all good stuff. I mean, yeah, good job. And I said, wow, that's, that's, that's a tall order. So, sounds to me like you really need Jesus to help you. She thought for a minute and said, no, I don't think so. I think I can do these things my own, on my own. Now, wow, functional theologian. I'm going to behave. I'm going to have good moral production today, and I'm going to do it myself. I was trying to help her as a, as, as a pastor. I mean, come on. I think you need Jesus. No, not so much. Further in the conversation, and this was... <laughs> Further in the conversation, we were chatting about uh, a sibling. It just came up. It was a while. A sibling entered the conversation. Uh, a sibling who was having similar behavioral challenges. And I said, wow, so 
Sounds to me like she's doing those things because she's a little sinner just like us. She said, hmm, no, I don't think she's a little sinner. I think she's just a little silly willy. And I thought, man, I love this. I have a new moral category. So, so when I'm misbehaving, I don't have to say, well, I'm a little sinner today. I don't have to do that. I can just say I'm being silly. I thought, wow, I'm silly willy. Well, trusting humble dependence, not the innocence of a child. Uh, it doesn't take long as a parent to set that aside. But I, I, um, I believe that Matthew is setting up a contrast. So there's the part about the kids. And we move then to this young man whose story we read a moment ago. And as you notice on your study sheet, I have a, a good and a bad. This is a really good guy. If you're a parent, this is a guy you'd want as your kid. I mean, good night. It says here, I mean, look at later, Jesus lists a bunch of commandments. This guy says he's been doing this. Another cross-reference says, I've been doing those things since I was a kid. So he's claiming that when he was a teenager, never had an attitude, not even once. Wow. No door slamming. No mouthing off, you know, as kids do. I, he's, he's a good guy, right? And he's loaded. Why is that important? Well, because in a pre-social security day, it's really good if you're a parent and your kids are loaded. You hope, if they like you, that they'll take care of you later on. So some of those things are not specified in the text. It, we, don't even, we don't know how he got rich. Maybe his parents had already died and left him a big inheritance. Don't know. But the guy had resources. We don't know what he looked like or how he rolled up to, you know, to the conversation. Big chariot, or I'm guessing that like most people who have means in a setting with a lot of more humbly um, uh, dressed people, he might have looked apart. I don't know that. The text doesn't say. I don't want to guess too much, but I am guessing that he might have looked apart. Here comes a guy that people kind of go, oh, he's loaded. He can tell by the way he carries himself or, or whatever. Now, at the same time, and I list this up under the part that says today's text, I, I find this very interesting. He's, he's morally aware. He's trying to be good. He's trying to live a good life. But I, it looks to me like he has a sneaking suspicion that maybe he's missing something. Okay? Why else are you here? If you're so sure you're, you're batting a thousand with God, why are you showing up to this rabbi to say, uh, just out of curiosity, am I missing something? That interesting? And I wonder if in his own heart, there's not something that makes him say, man, what if, what if you got to get a 95 on the test with God and I'm only getting a 94? Wouldn't that be awful to show up at heaven's door and have St. Peter go, oh, you missed it by one. Go, come on, man, that'd be terrible. So there's, I, I think there's something in him that makes him wonder um, am I, am I, I mean, I know I'm good, but am I good enough? Wow. This is a big deal. It's a big story. In fact, like I have here in front of you, um, he, he's like most Americans. He's like most people. In fact, maybe, maybe even most of us who tend to view, and I'm using the term salvation. I'm using that. It's a term that just, it's a church term, forgiveness, if you will, forgiveness by God, friendship with God. As a, as a result of doing. He tends to view it that way. What good thing 
must I, what's it say? Must I do to get eternal life? So he's viewing being forgiven by God the way a lot of people do. That is, if I, if I do good enough stuff, and you, you, you guys know, because you've been around a while, if, if you haven't, um, there's some word pictures that often show up in the New Testament. To, to understand a term or whatever, you, you dig a little deeper, you go, oh, that's, that's meaning this. Well, here's the idea in this case. Um, many of us build our understanding of, of being right with God or getting to heaven someday on an old-fashioned scale. You know what I'm talking about? The two parts, we don't have those anymore. But the part where it has two sides. And people get the idea, really, it's kind of common, that at the end of your life, you're hoping that you have more good stuff on the good side and then less on the bad side. So that when God takes a look at your life, you, know, you get to heaven, you're standing outside, and Peter, or whoever it is, puts all the good stuff he did on one side, and then the bad stuff, it'll go clunk, and you'll go, see, I made it. And we wouldn't maybe put it that crassly. But I think that's the functional theology of a lot of people. Yea, verily, most Americans, been around. I've been around a while doing what I do, and I cannot tell you how many times... Somebody will say something like this in a, in a funeral type setting. They were such a good person. I know they're in heaven. Now, what they're doing is they're telling me that they believe that what I'm going to call a transactional view of getting to heaven, that they're a good person. There's more good than bad. Therefore, God is going to give them a place in heaven. You may be here today and you might believe that. And so Jesus interacts with this guy because that's his, that's what he believes. What do I need to do just to make sure that it's clunk like this? The good side. What do I need to do? Am I, am I missing something on my, my report card with God? So Jesus gives him an answer. I, I love this interaction. It's really cool. It makes him think. See, I love making people, I love thinking about this stuff. So Jesus says, well, if you want to enter life, that is eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, what do you think of that answer? Is that okay? Well, you say, wait a minute, Jesus, I thought it wasn't about being good enough. How come you're telling him to keep the commandments? Well, for one, Jesus is keeping the conversation going, but it's actually true. If you think about this, Jesus could have fleshed it out and said, you ready? You need to keep all the commandments all the time, from the time you're born to the time you die, both externally and internally in all the desires and hidden things of your heart. Just keep them all, all the time, and you'll be perfect. Huh, look at that. Heaven is for you. Now, of course, we all know that before we got out of grammar school, we broke several of these. We did. We just did. You might say, well, you're not culpable. You're a child. I know, but you still did it, man. It's like speeding when you didn't mean to. Or when you did. Um, well, let's not go there. Um, Jesus says, keep the commandments. Wisely, the young man says, oh, which ones? <laughs> let's clarify this. So Jesus then gives a list. And if you keep track of these things and know Exodus 20, you know that Jesus goes to what we would sometimes call in Sunday school, the second table of the Ten Commandments, the first four, typically viewed as Godward, and the second and over in numbers 5 through 10 that are more toward people, toward how you treat people. So he, he lists several of those commands, like 
Don't kill people. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor, honor your father and your mother. And then he goes to what later in another conversation Jesus will say is the second great commandment of all. It's also in the Old Testament. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of people in the old, old world said that. A lot of people did. It was kind of a common thing. And Jesus said, yeah, that's true. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the guy says, I mean, would you have said this? All these things I've kept, what do I still lack? I, I don't even think I could, I mean, wow. I, I couldn't claim that. Now, I have on your study sheet here, he sees a good moral life. This is on the second page, right? Top of the second page. He sees a good moral life primarily as outward behavior, not inner thoughts and desires. He wasn't here for our sermon series on the ten, on the, well, the Sermon on the Mount, and certainly not the Ten Commandments. We preached on these things, and we saw Jesus. Remember this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? We saw Jesus point out that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he wasn't just after the external behavior. Like, we're in worse trouble than what we thought. So when God said, this is what Jesus is teaching. When God said, don't kill people, he didn't mean just like, don't leave bodies on the floor. Though that's good. He meant don't want to. Or don't be angry without a cause, because to do so is in a sense killing them. So Jesus isn't raising the bar of the Ten Commandments. He's explaining what God meant the whole time. And people had reduced. We're reductionist. That's what we do. We, it's like in a track meet. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched track meets. I used to run track, cross country, some of those things. And they have that high jump bar where you run over, you try to jump over this bar, right? Well, I can do that, especially if you put it like, a, like one foot. I can jump over that bar every single time, not miss once if you put the bar low enough. We love lowering the bar. So we read, you shall not murder, and you go, boom. Never killed anybody. And then Jesus comes along and says... But have you ever wanted to or thought about it or wished them dead or wished them injury or hated them without a cause? It's like, yeah, I had five sisters. Of course. I mean, yes. And suddenly I've broken that one. And he goes right through the list of don't murder, don't commit adultery. And in Matthew 5, Jesus addresses that too. So this guy can say, nope, never committed adultery. And Jesus would come along and say, yeah, but have you ever wanted to? Wished you could? Wished you had? Thought about it? Looked twice? Oh, buddy, I am in serious trouble. And so are you. And you can do this with every one of the commands. And that's what Jesus taught about the Ten Commandments. It isn't just like, nope, nobody's dead when I left the room. No, no, no. It's more than that. Because God is always after not just my behavior outwardly. He's after my heart, my motives, my intent, my thoughts. And if that's the case, oh, buddy, I'm, I'm. I'm in trouble. So this guy says, I've kept all those. Because he's only thinking externally. He doesn't see. He doesn't see the rest. Now, Jesus then steps to money. But he's not really talking about money. If you look at, uh, I'm starting now at um, verse, verse 21. Jesus is doing something else with the Ten Commandments. You don't recognize it as such. Because he doesn't say, now about the Ten Commandments again. He doesn't even talk about it. But he is. So he says to the guy, if you would be perfect, that is fit for heaven, here's what you need to do. Go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and, 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 
Come, follow me. There's two parts of this, not one. He doesn't just say, give away your stuff. You know what this is about? For this young man, money, possessions, that was his functional God. That's where he found his security, his hope, his reason for getting up in the morning. Not unlike, perhaps, some of us. I have a good job. My health is intact. I've got stuff. I'm good. That's him. Jesus is not making a big deal like you'll get into heaven if you give away all your stuff. He's saying, get rid of your false God. And follow me. This is a great example of the Bible always saying, turn from and turn to. Um, Sometimes some of us were raised in churches where we spent too much, a lot of time on the turn from, like the bad list. And we maybe didn't hear the part about turn to. The Bible always does both turn away from and turn to. And Jesus does it here. Turn away from, quit, quit, quit trusting all your stuff to give you status and power and identity. Quit, quit, knock it off and turn to me. Follow me. Now, remember that little paradigm. It shows up again a little later in the text. He says, you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, come, follow me. And the, the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. He had great possessions. He understood that to be a follower of Jesus meant that he couldn't make a God out of his stuff. Now, I mentioned the Ten Commandments. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? Exodus 20, starting verses 1 and 2. It goes like this. I have it there in front of you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. You shall have no other gods before me. Wow. Jesus then addresses this guy's primary God, his functional God, and says, if you're going to be a follower of me, you need to turn away from that, whatever the, that is. For you, it may not be money. You might say, good, I'm broke. I don't have to get rid of anything. You're missing the point. The point is, whatever is your functional God, whatever orders your life, whatever you love, whatever gives you security, whatever you trust, and come, follow me. Wow. The guy walks away. I, I mentioned in your study notes, it's not here, but there's, if you look at that piece of paper you have, there are sermon notes from today and then discussion points for your small groups, okay? In, in I think on one of those, I mentioned... I don't have it here in front of me. I, I think it's Mark's gospel. I, I, I really value this, and I hope you talk about this in your groups. I think it's Mark's gospel where it says, when the guy's going to walk away, it says his, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he walks away. You go, wait a minute. Jesus loves the guy and he walks away. How can he love him if he walks away? He does. He does. That's one of the texts in the Bible that underscores the love of God, even for people who ignore him or say, no, thank you, right? Still loved by God, still loved by God. I think you should interact with that this week. I think it's a big deal in the text and how we understand people who may never agree with the Bible or the God represented here. God looks at him. He loves him. He loves him. Make it, it's a big deal. Now, verse 23, then there's a debrief. Okay, the guy leaves, 
And I can just imagine maybe there was a stunned silence. I don't know. Jesus says to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person get in or enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a statement just to say it's not going to happen. That's pretty tough. Now, this statement about a rich person. Again, people look at that and say, well, then you've got to get rid of your stuff. And it's, it's missing. It's missing the point. It's why I for my sermon title, I asked the question why it's hard, why it's hard for good people to get to, to, to be saved, to be forgiven by God. Why is it hard? That's what I'd like you to kind of percolate on here a little bit. Now, I got to say this historically. OK, a little step aside for a moment in good Jewish context. People looked at having stuff, possessions, health, a lot of things. They looked at that as the blessing of God. So it would have been common in this culture to look at this guy. I mean, here he is, rich young guy, and say he's clearly blessed by God. And sometimes, again, we do the same thing. If we have our health and we have our stuff and our 401k is doing well, we have a good job. It's easy for us to say, I mean, God clearly likes me. Right? And conversely, if a person is, or you, are broke, your health is, is, is struggling, and you don't have a job, and struggles in other areas of your life, it's pretty easy to look at it and go, clearly God doesn't love me. Look at my life. It's kind of lousy. If God loved me, my life would be better. And then those whose life is better, they say, clearly God loves me. So I'm saying that armchair theologians, all of us. And that's what's kind of percolating through the text here. Well, the disciples then are looking at this rich guy who's walks away from Jesus. Jesus says all this stuff about his money. Jesus, the disciples in verse 25 say in great astonishment, well, then who can be saved? Who can be forgiven by God? If it's, if he can't be forgiven by God, who has a chance, right? Come on. He's one of the good guys, which by the way, might be your question too. Well, then who can be saved? If being a good person doesn't get you into heaven, I mean, come on, who's got a chance? Jesus agrees. Isn't that striking? He looks at them and says, you're right. With people, with man, mankind, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You're right, guys. To his disciples, you're right. If it was left up to you guys, who could get to heaven? And you know, you know that what's undergirding that? You should know this. What's undergirding that is this. The Bible correctly says that heaven is a perfect place. Perfect. I didn't say only, you know, slightly. No, no. Perfect. Perfect place. And it's built for perfect people. Which means you and I are in serious trouble. Because who can deserve to go there? That's what he's trying to do, the guy in the story. He's trying so hard to be good enough to go to a perfect place. And Jesus is kind of pulling the rug out to say, hey, buddy, you're counting on being, you're counting on your moral performance and your stuff. It's never going to get you there. It's not. So how can anybody, how can anybody have hope of heaven? And that's the beauty of the story of Jesus as explained by the Bible. That's why the Bible calls the story of Jesus gospel or good news, which basically it says, you're right. 
when you realize you're not good enough. You're bankrupt. Not a money for heaven. You're right. And that's why Jesus came, lived a perfect life, quite unlike ours, died on a cross to pay for all the stuff. Well, sin's described in the Bible in two categories, right? The bad stuff you do and the good stuff you should have done and you didn't. Jesus paid for all that. He paid for it. Like you got a big ticket, like a $3 million ticket. And you're going, oh, buddy, it's going to be a long time in jail for that. Well, Jesus paid the ticket. He paid it. He paid it all. And then he invites you to be a part of his family. And he, what, what that means is you say, God, I acknowledge I'm broke in heavenly currency. I'm gonna, I, this guy's trying to be good, and I can't, I can't even get close to it. even this guy. I, I'm out of money to get to heaven. And the Bible tells us that when we trust Jesus as our Savior, that is, I'm, instead of counting on me to be good enough to earn my way, I count on Jesus to have paid for it. That's, that's what we're talking about, trusting Jesus to be the one who pays my debt instead of me paying my debt by being a nice guy. The Bible says when I get that and I trust Jesus and I have this little talk with God about that, God, I know I'm a sinner and I've kind of broken all your rules. Most of them. No, I broke them all. I'm trusting Jesus and him alone. The Bible talks about what God does then. That is, our sin is credited to Christ at the cross. And his righteousness, that righteousness from that perfect life, is credited to you. Heaven, for perfect people, you're covered by a perfect person. It's like getting into heaven on his ticket. Does that make sense? It's stunning. Otherwise, there's no way you'd get in. There's no way I'd get in either. Because heaven's a perfect place and it's for perfect people and Jay has no chance. Unless I'm hanging out with, covered by somebody else who is perfect and who's paid for my sin. That's, that's, that's the gospel. That's what's percolating through this whole text as Jesus tells the story. Now, just one more thing as we go here. Uh, verse 27, Peter says, hey, look, Jesus, we did this. That's verse 27. We did this. We left everything and followed you. Just like Jesus told this other guy, leave all that stuff and follow me. Peter says, we did it. We did it. What is there for us? What then will we have? I mean, I mean are, this guy got a lot of stuff. Are we going to get a lot of stuff? We've done this. We did what you asked. We left everything. For some of these guys, they're fishermen. They left their careers, many of them. And they're following Jesus. They're all in to follow this rabbi. Jesus says to them, in the new world. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So he's looking. He's saying this. I'm not promising you here that you, after six more weeks, are going to win the lottery and you're going to get rich real fast and live happily ever after, not lose your teeth. I mean, come on. He's not promising an easy life here. He says, in the next world. The Bible very clearly teaches, you ready? A world to come. It does. And it banks a lot on that. You get to decide that, how that fits into your functional theology. The Bible teaches a new world where things are different. 
Jesus says, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, he says, you who have followed me will also sit. He's talking about those, those guys right then will sit on 12 tribes, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone. That's everybody else. Everyone who has, who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, lands for my sake. And I take the left there to be not like you. If you did all that, you'd have to move to an island someplace by yourself. But left, I think, in the sense of functional trust, my my. My hope, my security is not in any of the things this world has to offer. For my sake, we'll receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And many who are first, that is here, people look at them and go, they're winners. W on their forehead, winners. Many of the people here that look like winners will be last. And many people here who look like losers, but who were rich in faith, will come out on top. How interesting. He asks you, Jesus does, he asks you to kind of bank on that which is to come. Now, this is very similar, if you know your Bible a bit here, it's very similar to Hebrews 11, verse 6, isn't it? Where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That is, it's, it's worth it to be a follower of the God of the Bible. It's worth it to be a follower of the God of the Bible. Whatever that means here, it's worth it to be a follower of the God of the Bible. So I want to just bring this full circle there in your study sheet response. So I want to answer my question. Why is it hard for good people to be saved, to be forgiven by God is what I mean again by that church word saved. And the answer is first, their eyes are riveted. On their moral goodness and achievements. They don't see their spiritual bankruptcy and their desperate need for a savior. Um, Often when it comes to preaching and things like that, you'll get a better response in the ghetto than you will in the suburbs. Right? Doesn't mean somebody's better or worse or anything like that. It's not about economic judgments, moral judgments, not about any of that. It's about saying... People who see their need for for God are more ready to hear what the Bible says. And those whose lives are so full of stuff and looks like you're doing great are less likely to think about a God who is in heaven who makes demands on their life. So these, these guys are listening. These guys aren't. Isn't that fascinating? I think I think there's truth to that. Their eyes are riveted on their own moral goodness. I I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard for good people to to be forgiven by God. It's not hard for God. It's hard for them to see their need. Second, they tend to see salvation as a transaction instead of a gift of grace. They tend to see, I need to do one more good thing. It's because of what I do. And can I say this as we kind of bring this full circle here? Listen, um, I've been around church a long time. You know that I was raised in a home by mom took us to church. My dad wasn't into it so much. And um, my earlier years were filled with, with both of those, those, those streams to my, to my benefit, I think, at this point in my life. But um, I think sometimes even people who hang out at church a lot tend to think that God is impressed by how good you are, how good we are. Jesus died for my sins, and I'm pretty good, you know, I'm a pretty good person. 
And so if we, here's the thing, if we see ourselves as kind of pretty good people, we won't think all that much of Jesus because we don't think we need a savior. Sometimes Christian people say to me, they do. Uh, sometimes it's Jay too. will say, I don't have much appreciation for Jesus. I just feel kind of cold in my heart. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes part of the problem is I'm thinking of myself as a fairly decent person instead of somebody who's just an inch away. Oh my goodness sakes. Apart from the work of the spirit of God in your life and in mine. Oh buddy, I'm in serious trouble. I need him every single day. And you do too. You may not even realize it to pull you back from the edge of doing something really dumb. And and, uh, you need him. The minute I start thinking I'm really a pretty good person, I don't think I need much of Jesus. You need Jesus. I do too. A lot. I need a savior that's this big. See? That's the story of this guy. A rich, young ruler. I ask you here, do you believe the biblical gospel? Bible says it's not by works lest anyone should boast. Nobody gets to heaven because they earned it. Nobody. Zero. Not one. Only ones that are there are those who've trusted Christ as their Savior. They went all in on Jesus. They quit trusting themselves to be good enough. Well, I hope you believe the biblical gospel. If you want to dialogue about these things, like really, and where's that say it? I'd love to talk to you about that kind of stuff. It's really all over the Bible. And I also ask here, can you communicate it to somebody else? You'll get in a conversation with a rich young ruler too. Or somebody trusts their own goodness. I hope you're able to dialogue about it. I don't mean in some angry, judgmental way. I just mean I think you should be able to talk about it. How to get to heaven. I want to pray for us about this. Would you stand with me, please? And we'll pray and and head out. Our Father, we need your help to, to really get this. We do. We, we tend to be captured so much by how good we are and, and to see you as a God who grants heaven to good people. We struggle to think differently. We're kind of steeped in this. And I thank you for this story in the Bible about this guy who came and, and was thinking about this and Jesus, how you helped him to think about it. Thank you for that. And I pray for all of us in the sound of my voice here and listening later uh, that you would help us as well to think about what we really believe about heaven and who gets to go there. It's kind of a big deal. Father, point us to Jesus. Help us to see our need for a Savior. And I thank you for how you'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen.